Hello, welcome to Seeing Saw, the official Spiral podcast. I'm Catherine Bray, Saw fan and film critic, and briskly revolving with me on a merry-go-round in an abandoned zoo, we have... Anna Bogatskaya. I'm a writer, sawhead, co-founder of the feminist horror collective The Final Girls and Stram Mourner. <laughs> You're not over him yet? No, I never will be. And I'm Charlie Shackleton. I'm a documentary filmmaker and occasional film critic, fellow sawhead, but conversely, full Hoffmaniac, till I die, born and raised. And although we love endlessly rewatching the original Saw films, excitingly, there is, of course, a new Saw film almost out in the world. Spiral from the Book of Saw stars Chris Rock, Max Minghella, Samuel L. Jackson and Marisol Nichols. And that's out on 14th of May or May 17th if you're in the UK. But in this episode, it's the turn of the sixth instalment, Saw 6. There will be gruesome dilemmas, there'll be hydrofluoric acid, and there will be spoilers. So if you're new to the franchise, we'd suggest not starting with Saw 6. You're going to be adrift in a sea of Saw. Go back and watch them in order and then have a listen to this episode after you've seen Saw 6. Anna, what's going on in the wider horror world when Saw 6 comes out? So there is a 3D mania going on. That's what's happening. In 2009 alone, which is when this film is first released, every single horror franchise that is operating at that time has a 3D entry. There's The Final Destination, 3D. There's My Bloody Valentine, 3D. There's My Soul to Take, not a great Wes Craven entry point, also 3D. There's Piranha 3D. And this kind of harkens back to another resurgence of the 3D gimmick that came around in the early 80s. And also a lot of the classic horror franchises had an entry where they played around with 3D elements to them, including Friday the 13th and the Amityville Horror franchise. And this film initially, well, there was an idea by the producers of trying to incorporate 3D elements. They didn't have enough time to make that happen. The editor, Kevin Greutard, actually steps up into the directorial chair in this film, much like in the last entry into the Saw franchise. The production designer, David Hackle, was the director. Now it's the turn of the editor. And one of the things that I found really interesting when I was researching for this episode is actually how much more violent this film is to the point where in Spain... Not really a country for extreme sensitivity to violence or sex traditionally gave it an X rating, which means not dissimilar to the way the MPAA rates films in the United States meant that it severely diminished its distribution potential. So for a massive, massive release like Saw 6, which was planned to be put into over 300 cinemas in Spain, that meant that it could only be screened in porn cinemas. So that would literally reduce it to nine screens in the entirety of the country. So they had to recut a few elements from the film. They didn't center too many things. They took out some of the more extreme shots of the film so they could actually resubmit it, appeal the classification and actually release it properly. But it was a big hubbub, which obviously always works for the benefit of a film release. It's kind of a shame. Imagine going to a porn cinema to watch Saw 6. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we climb aboard the lethal merry-go-round that is Saw 6, we'd better get 
Charlie on one of his patented plot recaps with a forensic detail to rival Jigsaw himself. What goes down in this one, Charlie? Thank you very much. So we open on two loan sharks, Simone and Eddie, who wake up in the trap that, spoiler alert, I will be voting for in the trap race at the end of this episode. That is a spoiler. I really like this trap where we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, but they have to choose parts of their body to cut off, essentially, to place on a scale and whoever can place the most weight will be allowed to live. Very gruesome opening for this film. From there, like most of the films at this point in the franchise, we pick up more or less exactly where we left off with Detective Mark Hoffman getting out of his protective glass box that we saw him secreted into when the walls closed in on uh, Agent Strom. R.I.P. And he comes back in to the room where the walls closed in, opens them up again, has a little look at his handiwork. A smushed Strom. Indeed. Thoroughly smushed. <laughs> yeah, if you thought he was coming back, like people occasionally have a habit of doing in the Saw franchise, you are plumb out of luck. He's just a bag of organs and skin now. So from there, we cut to Umbrella Health, an insurance company led by the executive William Easton. And we find him in his office together with the company's attorney, Debbie. And together they're preparing for a lawsuit brought by the family of one Harold Abbott, who died of heart disease after being denied coverage by Umbrella Health due to his failure to declare a long-ago oral surgery. From there, we return to the trap that opened the film and we find uh, the police on the scene where they find Strom's fingerprints everywhere. They're on the eyelids of Eddie, who fell prey to the trap. They're on bits of the mechanism, literally everywhere, confirming, perhaps, their suspicions that Strom, now missing, has become a jigsaw acolyte. In this scene, it's also revealed, to our and Hoffman's surprise, that Special Agent Lindsay Perez who you might remember died in Saw 4 and was mourned in the previous film, is alive and well. But how how is she alive after an exploding Billy the Puppet? Those things are lethal. They just took the bits of Billy out of her. <laughs> <laughs> she does have some scars. Yeah, she's, you know, she's got the wounds. She's not unscathed. From here, we go to the morgue where your friend and mine, the pathologist, Dr. Adam Hefner... <gasps> returns for his first appearance since Saw 4. I was delighted to see him back on the screen. Good times. And he gets some good lines here. He says that he's examined every victim of the Jigsaw Killer. He's made as a through line through this grisly series of events. And that information is significant because it's him that reveals a particularly telling detail about the uh, latest victim, Eddie, which is that the Jigsaw piece that's been cut out of his body, as is Jigsaw's want, has been cut with a serrated knife edge, as opposed to a surgical blade usually favoured by Jigsaw. And the only other case where this was so was that of Seth Baxter, who you may remember was the man who killed Hoffman's sister and later fell prey to a Jigsaw trap built by Hoffman himself. The pendulum victim. This sets the police's minds a working, a buzz wondering whether there's some clue in that. What kind of maniac would switch knives? <laughs> <laughs> Jigsaw doesn't leave anything to chance. He's not just got like a knife drawer where he's picking them at random. He's he, consistent. He knows his knives. Meanwhile, investigative journalist Pamela Jenkins, who you may remember made a very fleeting appearance in the previous film, has found out about Jill Tuck's box. And through records of Jigsaw's estate, she knows that Jill has been given this mysterious box that we don't at this point know the contents of. And after she tells Hoffman, 
He uses this information as leverage to wrestle control of Jigsaw's latest game from Jill Tuck. We discover that the box indeed contained the envelopes with the victims for this new game that we're about to be thrust inside. It's also about the size of a head, isn't it? I feel like they were hoping that we might think it was a head. The box? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a bit of that seven riff because that's such an iconic head box. Yeah, they do that a few times in the Saw franchise where there's a box that you reckon may have a head in it. It's an appropriately dramatic-sized box. And I don't think there ever is a head in it. No, I don't no. think so. But you're right to say that this is a good-sized box and that there may well be further surprises to come from the box. In flashback, we see Jill Tuck's conversion to Jigsaw Acolyte, as well as just uh, Jigsaw ex-wife, after she was reintroduced to a rehabilitated Amanda Young, previously a client of hers at the clinic. And once she came under the wing of Jigsaw, suddenly able to overcome her addictions, much to Jill's amazement. And perhaps professional jealousy. Meanwhile, William Easton, the executive from Umbrella Health, is kidnapped from the office and taken to an abandoned zoo where he encounters a series of traps in which he must choose who lives and who dies, much like his company's formula does on a day-to-day -day basis. And do we think the Umbrella, is that a reference to the Umbrella Corporation from Resident Evil? Tell me more, I don't know anything about that. Just the big bad corporation in Resident Evil is the Umbrella Corporation, so Umbrella Health, I'm guessing, is a little cheeky... Shout out. Could well be. Also, just umbrellas are scary. They're pointy. <laughs> so he must make his way through these traps in under 60 minutes or these cuffs around his hands and feet will explode when the time has run out. And he'll be free. <laughs> he will. Free to go. Yeah, free to go. Exactly. Meanwhile, watching on via surveillance video are mother and son Tara and Brent who are trapped in a room with a mysterious vat of hydrofluoric acid on the wall and a big lever that has two positions, one live and one die. They have a bit of discussion about what this might mean, but it's not yet clear. I mean, it's quite clear. Yeah, well, if you're so clever, Anna, why don't you tell me what you'd do? It's literally live or die. Yeah, but they don't know what it, the context. I would like context to live, please. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Jigsaw, <laughs> I choose that. However, upon seeing William Easton on the monitors, Tara observes, we're here because of your father. Mm. Meanwhile, Pamela Jenkins, the journalist, goes to visit Jill Tuck and gives her a letter that was found by the police at the uh, hospital scene or the mock-up hospital where Jigsaw died in Saw 3. Leaving the apartment, Pamela Jenkins is herself kidnapped and also deposited in a locked room. It's basically the room over from Tara and Brent's at the zoo. They're neighbours. Neighbours at the zoo. Yeah, they're neighbours at the zoo. Neighbours in torture. Neither with much to do. She doesn't even have a lever. She's just really waiting the 60 minutes out. Furious at the contents of the letter, Jill delivers a package to a room at the hospital, the actual hospital, not the uh, pretend jigsaw hospital. And we f just forget about that particular development because nothing else happens with that in this film, but it might be worth committing to memory. Let's say that. Don't worry about it for now. Over the course of his trial, William Easton finds himself forced to disregard his precious formula about who will live and who will die when he's placed in a series of dilemmas. And we'll talk about the traps more, I'm sure, in the trap race at the end of the episode. But, for instance, he chooses to save himself over his janitor, Hank. He chooses to save his elderly secretary, Addie, over his young file clerk, Alan. And then again himself over his lawyer, Debbie. And then finally he finds himself forced to pick just two of his six employees Aaron, Emily, Gina, Dave, Shelby and Josh 
who are flinging around on a merry-go-round with shotguns pointed at them, and he can only save two. Finally, in flashback, we see perhaps why he's there to begin with when he himself denies Jigsaw access to an experimental Norwegian gene therapy. Just rude, really. Yeah. Give him his experimental Norwegian gene therapy. No, he wasn't willing to. He's a bad man. (laughs) The lives he could have saved. Potentially. I think Jigsaw says it has a 40% success rate. Yeah, that's not that experimental. That's like quite a good success rate. Well, can you trust Jigsaw though? Well, Jigsaw also said that the doctors, the Norwegian doctors, said he would be a perfect candidate for it. Mm. I'm just saying, two sides to every story. (laughs) You're defending the US healthcare system. (laughs) Over a serial murderer. Potato, potato. He's versus Norwegian doctors, not versus Jigsaw. Also, arguably, he would not have become a serial murderer if he had gotten the Norwegian experimental therapy. That's true. The important thing is it establishes it's one more jigsaw fact for the canon, his affinity for experimental Norwegian gene therapy. The police, meanwhile, Detective Hoffman and Special Agents Perez and Ericsson go to an audio forensics lab in order to restore the original voice from the tape which was found at Seth Baxter's pendulum death scene, just as the technician named Sachi reveals it to be, in fact, Hoffman's voice on the tape all along. What? Before they have even time to react to that revelation, Hoffman himself just straight up murders everyone in the room. He goes full stabby stabby. Yeah. Such a good scene. Mm -hmm. Just Terminator. Bam, bam, bam. I mean, none of your traps, choose where to live or die nonsense, just absolutely clearing the place out. (laughs) Goes back to basics. And then delightfully, he retrieves Strom's severed hand, which he's revealed to have had all along, having saved it from the trash compactor room, and uh, applies delicate little fingerprints all over the room to make it look like Strom did it. It's very good. There's an episode of Red Dwarf that does that as well. I mean, not fingerprints, but like to get through a fingerprint Mm. door. He's got a hand in his jacket. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, he's been doing this all along. Hence the fingerprints literally just everywhere at every crime scene. Hoffman, at this point, returns to the zoo to find that Jill Tuck has left the letter that she was given by Pamela that was originally recovered from the fake hospital thing where Jigsaw died. She's left that on Hoffman's desk. He has a look at it, and it's revealed to be the letter that Amanda opened in Saw 3. Whoa! We're closing up narrative arcs from three films ago at this point. And this is revealed to have been a letter written by Hoffman himself in which he ordered her to kill Dr. Lynn Denlon, who you might remember from the third film, the doctor responsible for keeping Jigsaw alive, and basically blackmailed her that if she didn't kill Dr. Lynn Denlon, which he knew would then lead to her death, then he would reveal to Jigsaw that it was in fact Amanda who'd been conspiring with our old friend Cecil Adams the drug addict who attempted to rob the clinic and in doing so caused Jill Tuck's miscarriage. It's twists on twists on twists on twists. It really is an absolute twist cake. Twist bonanza, this one. It's a twist trifle. It's a trifle of twists. So Jill's absolutely fuming at this revelation and enters the room to electrocute Hoffman in his chair until he passes out. Meanwhile, reaching the end of his trial is old William Easton. He finds himself in this antechamber and the doors open up and he's revealed to be between, on the one side, the room with Pamela Jenkins, the investigative journalist, and on the other side, the room with Tara and Brent. At this point, Pamela is revealed to, in fact, be his sister. What? And indeed, his only family member present at the scene because Tara and Brent are not, in fact, his family, 
but Harold Abbotts. You may remember our old friend who had the oral surgery and therefore was denied treatment. That guy. And so, in fact, they are very cross. You would be. They come face to face with the man they hold responsible for their late husband slash father's death. And indeed, the lever in their room, the live or die, is for them to choose William's fate. But wait, didn't they say something about him being the father or... I'm giving you a chance to explain it, Charlie. (laughs) Yeah, well, the key line earlier in the film, we're here because of your father, was because she recognised a man who was the chief executive of the insurance company that was responsible for denying the claim of their father. So effectively the man who murdered their father slash husband. It's a clever misdirect. The final two items from Jill Tuck's box are finally revealed. As she pulls them from her bag, we see it's the reverse bear trap of many previous appearances across the franchise. An old fave. And... The key piece of any jigsaw victim's puzzle, the paparazzi photograph of them that selects them for a trap. And indeed, there's one of Hoffman. Uh, She shows that to him. He understands that he's going to be placed in yet another trap. And indeed, she pops the old reverse bear trap on his head. But because she's so cross about the blackmailing letter to Amanda, she doesn't even give him a chance of escape. It's an execution. Tara, the widow of Harold Abbott, ultimately chooses to spare William Easton, the man she holds responsible for his death. However, her son Brent steps in at the last minute, pulls the lever and absolutely pumps William right full of the acid. It's very grisly. His whole bottom half just treacles away. Oof. And finally, Hoffman, in the reverse bear trap, caught in the room, manages to actually lodge the trap between two bars on the window of the door to the room and wedge his face out of it, escaping with his life, but with his face very badly tore open. And as he screams, the credits roll, and it's another saw film in the bag. So Saw 6, it's a strong entry, I think. It's an interesting one. It's the first time that Saw really decides to get political. Oh, yes. I love Saw 6. And part of the reason is because it makes the political personal, because Jigsaw definitely has a personal vendetta against the health insurance company, Umbrella. And I think it has an underlying political critique as well, which is always welcome in genre. Yeah, I mean, Jigsaw has come a long way since punishing our old friend, software analyst Mark Wilson. (laughs) don't know if you remember what his crime was in the first Saw film. It was defrauding an insurance company. Ah, so mm-hmm. now now we're against the insurance companies. Yeah, I mean, I think Jigsaw's relationship with the insurance company and indeed the film's relationship with the concept of health insurance is an interesting one because to some degree it sort of goes against Jigsaw's main political outlook, which is fiercely libertarian. You know, he's all about everyone's got to do everything for themselves, no helping your fellow man, it's all standing up for you on your own two feet. You know, I feel like Harold Abbott, mm-hmm. who failed to declare his oral surgery. Yes. I feel like Jigsaw would put him in a trap for failing to declare his oral surgery. <laughs> Do you think? In a parallel universe where he wasn't already dead. Yeah, now the J- oral surgery will come to you. <laughs> exactly, yes. He'd like pull his teeth out or something. <laughs> because Jigsaw's all a, he's a stickler for the details. You can't make a single mistake or have a single failing. On the one hand, I think that there's a bit of a contradiction there. But at heart, 
he is also a little bit self-obsessed. And of course, the health insurance company in this case has wronged him. It's a powerful illustration of the power of empathy, I think, because we have the same narrative with Jigsaw initially being very against the suicidal Paul Leahy played by Mike Butters. Mm -hmm. And then after Jigsaw's own suicide attempt, he obviously comes around on the idea of suicide attempts, I think. And this is the same. He's initially against defrauding insurance companies and now he's against the insurance companies, but it's due to his personal experience with the insurance company. There's also a contradiction in his philosophy where he very explicitly in the previous film tells Hoffman to never make it personal, whereas this entire trap is extremely personal because he's targeting that VP of whatever the hierarchy of the insurance company is who personally denied his claim for the experimental Norwegian gene therapy. Yeah, I mean, he takes a lot of issue with William Easton's formula mm. where he calculates the value of a life and whether they should take on a client or not. But I think ultimately his issue is maybe just the way that formula is calculated. He's sort of happy with there being a formula that decides who lives and dies. But he's but not feel, happy when he's on the other side of that formula. Yeah, he should be the one to decide, I think, mm. is his point. Because ultimately, what are William Easton's traps that he's then put into? They're just situations where he has to decide who lives and dies and realizes that his formula isn't a very good way to calculate it because it's not taking into account, as Jigsaw keeps saying, the will to live. <laughs> <laughs> and also the personal nature of it, I think. It's a really interesting inversion of... The Third Man with the famous Orson Welles speech where Orson Welles obviously is Harry mm -hmm. Lyme in the Graham Greene adaptation. I mean, he's making money from vulnerable people in that film by selling fake penicillin. Mm -hmm. And he has the great speech where the hero is all, but have you ever seen them? Have you ever seen your victims and looked in their faces? And... Orson Welles just tells him to stop being melodramatic. Like they're up on this Ferris wheel and they're looking down at all these people. And of course, the people look like dots from a distance. And mm -hmm. he says, you know, would you really care if one of those dots stopped moving, especially if someone was giving you £20,000 per dot that stopped moving? Or would you calculate like, how many you could afford to leave alive? And this is the opposite thing. Jigsaw is saying, look, we're going to bring you right up close with these dots and you are going to care about it. And actually look them in the eyes as they die, as one of the dots actually says to William Easton. Yes, look at me as you're killing me. Oh, we've got to talk about that guy. That's one of my favourite performances in Saw. Mm. Actor Sean Matheson, I think his name is, strapped to the rotating merry-go-round of death. And he doesn't get very much time to make an impact with the audience. But the thing that's really nice about that is that once our hero, William Easton, has chosen two of the others for death, this guy knows that he is going to die. There's absolutely no way he can escape. So he gets to cycle through the emotions of, I can't believe you've done this to me, I'm angry, I'm accepting. It's almost the stages of grief in he's, one rotation of a carnival. <laughs> he's throwing all of his colleagues under the bus as well. He's trying to force William Easton's hand into saving him because obviously they're completely helpless. They're completely at the mercy of William Easton's will in this case. And he's trying to make a very strong case for himself and ultimately sadly fails, which is again kind of a contradiction of Jigsaw's whole philosophy because he clearly wanted to to live, but it was not up to him. It was not. One thing I like about Six is that perhaps the high point of the franchise really embracing its nature as one big soap opera. <gasps> yes. Not it's... only does every film start exactly where the previous one left off, you got characters whose deaths have been revealed to be faked and suddenly they're back in the room. It's a horror telenovela. It's great, dramatic, like mm. re entries. I know I go on a lot about my beloved Dr. Adam Hefner. He has a great little moment in his scene where Hoffman's like, you can't possibly know from a photograph 
which kind of knife was used to cut those pieces. And off screen, Dr. Adam Hefner gets to go, no, but I can. I'm Dr. Adam Hefner. <laughs> I've worked on every jigsaw case thus far. Maybe he doesn't say his name because you have to have the real info like me for that. I think it's also one of the, it's the film that confirms the Saw franchise as highly, extremely rewatchable and actually a franchise that really rewards being rewatchable. Perhaps not to the extent of Professor Shackleton, but still... Yes, you find a lot of joy in finding all of these nuggets of connections. Yeah, and you can't trip the film up, really, because it's very scrupulously true to itself and its own labyrinthine plot. I really enjoy, even if I don't necessarily believe them, but I really enjoy the intricacies of conspiracy theories and what's meant to have happened when in order for any particular conspiracy theory to ring true. And I think the joy of working out the plots of the Saw films is sort of akin to that, because in order for a conspiracy theory to work, everything has to be technically possible, but maybe unlikely. And that's kind of how Saw works as well. But because it's a piece of narrative, the technically possible, if perhaps unlikely, makes for a delightfully surprising and layered plot dynamic. And talking about dynamics, one of the dynamics between the characters that I absolutely adore that gets explored in this film is actually the endless squabbling, even after death, between Detective Hoffman and Amanda Young as the two key acolytes of office manager, branch manager Jigsaw. And they're just fighting for his attention and his approval to the point of completely forgoing his entire philosophy. So, you know, he fails in that regard. But the intricacies of how they try to outplay themselves. Yeah, it's lovely. There's a bit of rivalry there, as you you get with siblings and acolytes. Yeah, there's some great dialogue in the flashback sequence where we see them working alongside one another. And he's adjusting the gears mm-hmm. on the uh, the trap that old Timothy Young found himself in in Saw 3. And what is it she says? Well, you'll need to adjust the oil ratio if you change those gears. <laughs> She's so sassy to him. I love Amanda Young. To be honest, again, once again, a failed team building exercise because they would have gotten so much more done if they were just working together. Well, and it's a fun, you know, I mean, Jigsaw, he sure could pick them. <laughs> because his main beef with Amanda Young was that she became too zealous and was making inescapable traps. And so who does he recruit as his next assistant? The man who's made an inescapable trap in imitation of him. (laughs) Yeah, but look, they address this, and I think it's great that they do, with the first victim in this film. The first victim, in fact, in this film that survives a trap. She is later seen lying in a hospital bed saying... Of course I'm not going to rethink my life decisions. I had to cut my arm off. This guy's a maniac. She's not at all happy. She's not in the sort of Amanda or Hoffman position of being glad that she's been taught a valuable lesson. She's reacted the way that I think probably most people would react, which is a very negative reaction to Jigsaw's teachings. Ungrateful. Yeah, she's absolutely not happy about having cut off her own arm for the sake of learning a lesson. This ingrate. But also, she is actually, I mean, she's doing a lot of great acting in here, but she is fascinating because she is played by the actress Tanidra Howard, who was actually the winner of a Saw-themed reality TV show that aired for two seasons, actually, on VH1 called Scream Queens. The prize of that reality TV show, which also was Saw-themed and was judged by Shawnee Smith and James Gunn, of all people, in season one, 
he who would then go on to direct Guardians of the Galaxy and many other films, they had to go through a series of traps and the winner... Tanidra was promised a role in a Saw film. Ah, now lest we think that the Saw producer just giving away parts in this iconic franchise. I think there was some small print that said actually this person could just be in the scene, in the background. But she turned out to be so good, and I think she is good. Um, she's great. Some of those faces in the opening scene where she's hacking her arm off, it just ramps further and further and further up until it's like she's seen God. <laughs> and her eyes just uh, and mouth just form this rictus effect that is absolutely harrowing. And I think it's not a joke, but on the commentary, the director talks about how they were filming that scene. And at one point, it's a stunt woman's arm in the table because she's waving this cleaver around. And it's genuinely dangerous. And supposedly he yells, cut, obviously, meaning... <laughs> As a director, like, let's finish the scene here. No. And she brings down the, the machete <laughs> oh. near the arm. Uh, I don't know whether that's a bit of mythologizing. I like to think it's not because it's very fun. And acolytes of the pod will know that it just wouldn't be an episode of Seeing Saw without our regular feature, Jigsaw's Trap Race, contentiously pitting the traps of the franchise against one another in a conceptual fight to the death. So to recap the trap race, in round one, the bathroom trap from the first film won the day, went on to lose to the Razorbox hand trap from the second film. Then we had the Razorbox facing off against my beloved Pigvat. R.I.P. Pigvat. R.I.P. Pigvat, because uh, although the Pigvat won the day and triumphed against the hair chair trap in a subsequent episode, it was then taken down by... The mighty glass coffin room. Very tough contender there. So what's the glass coffin going to go up against from sort six? Well, we got options, guys. Just to quickly recap them, you've got your pound of flesh that we've been talking about a bit there from the very beginning of the film. Then we've got William's healthcare trial. <laughs> Five individual traps within that. The oxygen crusher, the gallows, the steam maze, the shotgun carousel and the acid room. And then right at the end there, you've got the reverse bear trap that Hoffman ends up in. So any early highlights leaping out at you guys from that little? Well, I have slightly spoiled my uh, intentions because I just couldn't hide my sheer love of the opening trap, the pound <sighs> of flesh. Mm -hmm. I cannot believe this is finally happening. We're finally in agreement. It might be an easy one because what a trap. It's beautiful. It's elegant. It's gruesome. I was re-watching Saw 6 for the however many time for this podcast and I had this beautiful plate of lamb trim leftover from a big roast we'd cooked on the weekend and I reheated it and poured gravy all over it and sat down to watch Saw 6. And normally by this stage in my life I can eat through anything but the scent of the warm lamb as that guy starts hacking into his stomach and cutting a sort of basketball-sized lump of flesh out of the side of him. I had to put the lamb down. It was actually genuinely, I could sort of feel in my stomach that this was not something I was going to get through. And I think that's the mark maybe of a, a good saw trap is if you can't finish your lamb. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so good about this, we touched last week, in fact, it was briefly in contention last week, a trap from Saw 5 where the characters have to insert their hands into a device that will bleed them mm -hmm. and fill it with blood. And, and this is obviously a similar conceit to an extent in that they're being asked to give something of their body. And also they're put in competition against one another. But in this case, what I like so much more about this one oh, yeah. is that the manner of donation is not prescriptive. 
Yes. So where in that, it was like, not only am I telling you what I want, blood, but I'm telling you how you're going to give it. You're going to shove your hand in the hole. I'm telling you the exact amount that I want in order for you to be able to survive the trap. Here, it has what all my favorite sword traps have, which is myriad possibilities about how you're going to approach this thing. And it instantly gets you as a viewer thinking, what would I give? Where would I begin? We're also really out of the gate on fire with this one. I think there's that implicit promise with a Saw movie that you don't want to be still in the lobby getting your popcorn. You want to be in your seat from the beginning or you're going to miss something great and probably something disgusting. And this is fulfilling that in spades. Yes, 100%. Performance-wise, as we mentioned, she really raises it as well. I think perhaps more than any other Jigsaw victim who really just has a trap Mm -hmm. rather than a wider character arc, she gives perhaps my favorite performance of them because she's just so in it. (laughs) I would argue that she is an almost perfect callback and on par with Shawnee Smith in the very first Saw film and the reverse bird trap. Mm. because she also gives a great performance in trying to get out of the trap. And then we get a little glimpse of what it was like for her after getting out. True. So it sounds like we all love this one, but this is such a strong entry for traps. I do think that there's a really strong case to be made for the shotgun carousel, which I think has the longest screen time of any of the specific traps. Obviously, like the bathroom trap carries on for the whole film, but in terms of a specific set piece, I think this is one of the longest ones. It's the one that they used to sort of sell this film at Comic-Con, you get a lot of bang for your buck with the merry-go-round of rotating death. It's very macabre. It's, in fact, all the traps in the zoo, fittingly for a, an amusement park location, are all very almost like Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> like there's literally animatronics because there's the Billy the puppet who introduces it all. He flings towards William and then he his mouth moves and he does a whole little spiel. And yes, each subsequent trap, there's the one with the lawyer, Debbie. It's like she's in a deadly play center. She's got to run around all of the different levels of it to try and escape. It's Chuck E. Cheese as imagined by Chucky from Child's Play. But you're right. It really, that whole series of traps reaches its apex with the carousel, with the merry-go-round. Yeah, because I think the gallows is actually a really interesting, simple one. I don't think it's going to be our winner, but that idea of just, would you pick to live or die between someone who's a little bit older, but has lots of loving family to miss them, or somebody younger who doesn't have anybody to miss them. I mean, I think it's a really harsh on the younger guy, the decision to allow him to hang because he's younger. He would meet all of those people later in life. Yeah, well, it's terrible for him because one of the things Jigsaw says is that he doesn't have any friends. It's like, well, way to rub it in. I mean, he's already going (laughs) to quite potentially die and now that's his final bit of character attack. I think we should talk about the acid room, no? Yeah, well, it's. I think it's, again, for me, it's not really a trap. It's a chance for old Brent to pull that lever and, and shovel the acid into what's-his-name, William Easton. And Brent actually was going to be quite a small child, but when they realised that they were going to have him pull the lever instead of his mother, I think they thought it would be a little much to have a five-year-old pulling the lever. It's and kind never of... a little much. <laughs> I would have quite enjoyed that, to be fair. Me too. Missed opportunity. And it's also a fun one in the acid room for the use of hydrofluoric acid, which is a nice little bit of research on the part of whoever came up with that as the specific acid. It's First of all, it's a film-friendly acid, TV-friendly acid. It also makes an appearance in Breaking Bad as what they use to dissolve some bodies. But I think it's also an interesting one in real life, if you're ever around hydrofluoric acid, 
do be careful because it damages your nerves. You can't tell that you've been burned by it. So people think, oh, I'm fine. I don't need to go to hospital. I can rinse this off. But no, 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 no. The hydrofluoric acid is eating away at you. It's a really nasty chemical. And I appreciate that level of attention to detail in the jigsaw trap world. Well, now I know to be careful around acid. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so despite... I think some strong arguments for the shotgun carousel and the acid room, it feels to me like we're coalescing around the pound of flesh trap for this one. That's what it feels like. Yeah, it's just one of the best. It is one of the best. I think you're right. Because it's not just disgusting. Like you say, it's got all the dynamics that you want from a classic saw trap. So if that's our winner, then it's going up against the glass coffin trap. Anna, what do you think if if those two are going head to head, the glass coffin trap, the walls are closing in, Hoffman's escaping in a big glass box. The perfect centre parting. I think I have to go with the pound of flash trap because of the elegance of it and because it is escapable. It is escapable. That's a big point in its favour. I think we know which way Charlie's going to go. He was anyone who listened to the last episode, he was very against the (laughs) position we put him in of having to choose between his despised pig vat and the glass coffin. All I'll say is finally, sanity is restored. (laughs) And a decent trap, perhaps the most decent, is at the top of our pyramid once more. I agree with you. The pound of flesh is an excellent and disgusting trap and not just because it put me off my plate of lamb. This is a first on the Scene Saw podcast. We're all in agreement. The first unanimous ruling. It's a landmark moment. So the definitive winner of Jigsaw's trap race for this episode is the Pound of Flesh trap. Justice served. Yep. And looking ahead to the next episode, Charlie, what do we have on the horizon? We got guts flying right at your face <laughs> in the franchise's first 3D entry. Beautiful. Can't wait. Anna, do you have a particular favourite gut that will be flying at our face? A particular favourite moment of any kind from Saw 3D? I couldn't pick a favourite gut. Actually, I could. I'm going to pick Agent Strom's guts from Saw 6. Lovely. A little ode to my beloved Agent Strom. But actually, in the next entry in the Saw franchise, we are going to board the pain train, which I'm very much looking forward to. Cryptic. If you haven't seen Saw 3D yet, do watch that one and then join us on the next episode. And even more excitingly, of course, if that's possible, we're looking forward to a brand new Saw film coming out very, very soon. Spiral from the Book of Saw is out on May 14th, or if you're like us and in the UK, that's May 17th. Thanks so much for listening. And please remember to rate, review and reform the US healthcare system by any means necessary. Seeing Saw is a Little Dot Studios production for Lionsgate. The show is hosted by Catherine Bray, Anna Bogatskaya and Charlie Shackleton. It is produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel with production support from Ellie Aitken. And we're edited by Content is Queen. Oh no, Charlie. What? I thought we were out. It's happening again. (laughs) We're caught in Catherine's trivia trap. So my trivia trap for this episode is that there are, in fact, in fact, I'm going to phrase it as a quiz. Can you tell me the three Friends alum that appear in the Saw franchise? There are three of them. One of them is in Saw 6. We've just seen him. Lisa Kudrow. (laughs) No, she's not in it. It's madly blank in the pig van. (laughs) No. So in this episode, we have Harold Abbott. (gasps) 
played by George <laughs> Newbern, and Friends fans will remember him as Danny the Yeti, who Rachel dates. Yes! Uh, yeah. She breaks up with him because he's weirdly close with his sister. He joins Dina Meyer from Saws 1, 2 and 3, who played the actress Kate that Joey Tribbiani falls for, who breaks mm. his heart. And the third Friends alum in the Saw-niverse is coming up in Spiral, Marisol Nichols, who in Friends played the Days of Our Lives character, Olivia. I'm genuinely stunned. <laughs> Does this mean Friends takes place in the Saw-niverse? <laughs> 